I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of James, at James chapter 5, and this, my friends, is the final time we will turn to the book of James, at least in this form. I know last week I said that there would be two weeks left, and that's true, we will have two weeks left in the book of James, uh, but this week we will finish the text and I've been thinking and praying a lot about next week being a summary sermon of lessons from James. There's just so much that I have learned from this great epistle. I thought it would be only appropriate to spend some time, not just in the text, but spending a whole week just thinking about all the lessons that we've learned from this great book. So this week, though, our task is to try to get through Uh, The rest of chapter 5, James 5, verses 12 through 20. James 5, 12 through 20. Uh, Let's read uh, God's word. Follow as I read. James writes, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him, excuse me, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the living God. Father, we need your spirit. As we look to your word, illumine our minds, we pray, uh, open our hearts to your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You should know it's not enough to be a Dodgers fan. You've got to hate the Giants. You should know it's not enough to just pay the delivery fee. You're supposed to tip more than your meal is probably worth. You should know, fellas, it's not enough to let her go first. You've also got to get the door and somehow still let her go first. You should know it's not enough to do your be real. You've got to not be late even if it's 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning. You should know it's not enough to text your mom on Sunday. FaceTime her, please. For James, it's not enough to stop sinning with your mouth. You've got to also speak appropriately and productively. You see, much of what James has said so far about our speech in this book has been prohibitive. Don't set fires. Don't gossip. Don't speak evil against one another. Don't grumble. Be slow to speak. Tame the tongue. And I hope those times in God's Word have been instructive for you as they have been for me. But it's not enough to just shut our mouths. It's not enough to just seal our lips. It's not enough to just 
not set fires or not grumble or not speak evil against one another. We must, if we are those with true faith, use our words positively, actively, purposefully, and productively, ministering to others and responding to God appropriately. And so as we finish this epistle, this is where we would expect, because we read the Pauline epistle so much, that James should just say hi and bye to a bunch of people and say bless you and see you soon to some others. But here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James finishes his letter with a set of instructions, a set of exhortations, all related in some way to the way we ought to use our words. We have over and over throughout James repeated the truth of Matthew 12, 34. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think that rightfully so, we've understood that negatively. We've understood that almost like some kind of threat that if you set fires with your mouth, if you speak evil against one another, if you gossip, that it's a reflection of your sinful heart. And we wouldn't be wrong. That's true. But I believe tonight we will see that out of the abundance of the heart of true faith, the heart submitted to God, that out of that kind of heart flows beautiful words of truth, a beautiful words of prayer and praise, beautiful words of care and restoration. And so tonight in our text, we'll see that true faith speaks purposefully, flowing from a heart submitted to God. True faith speaks purposefully, flowing from a heart submitted to God. We'll look at this in three parts, three ways that our mouths reflect a Godward heart. There are three ways that we indeed ought to speak, positively speaking. The first is in verse 12, and that's that true, true faith speaks the truth. True faith speaks the truth. First here in verse 12, James shows us the significance of our speech in speaking truth. Look again at verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here James shows us the importance of our words, and although he does so in sort of a roundabout way, he says do not swear or do not take oaths, he is focused positively on the truthfulness of our words. We need to understand a little bit of context here to understand why James goes about it this way. First, consider that throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh, God, instructed his people to take oaths. He told them to swear. And in fact, to swear by him by his name consider deuteronomy 6 13 it is the lord your god you shall fear him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear deuteronomy 10 20 says something very similar later in jeremiah chapter 12 verse 16 and it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. God's instruction in the Old Testament to his people and to those who would be grafted into his people was to swear, to take oaths, and in fact, by his name. And so by their truthfulness, God's people were to swear by his name as a way of promising that they would do something. They would swear by the name of Yahweh, because you always swear by something or someone greater than yourself. And when God's people swore by his name and actually followed through on what they would promise to do, 
this would reflect to others, both within God's people and outside nations, that their God was the one true God. And they represented and reflected Yahweh in their truthfulness. It was a testimony. It was worship for God's people to take an oath, to swear by his name. In fact, you need to see this in Hebrews 6. Turn to Hebrews 6 and we see uh, the pinnacle of this concept in Hebrews 6 as the author of Hebrews uh, talks about the certainty of God's promise uh, to the forefathers. Hebrews chapter 6, look at verse 13 and we'll go down to verse 18. It says there, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his, of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. There's a lot going on in that passage, and after it comes one of our favorite verses, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that we have in Jesus. What that passage is talking about is how sure we can be about God and His promises even to Abraham, the father of our faith, because God swore by His own name. You see, Yahweh, the very pinnacle of all of that is on this earth could not swear by anything else because he is and he was the greatest and so he swore by himself in promising that's how sure we can be by those two unchangeable things well God's people were also to be aware of the danger of swearing by Yahweh's name but swearing falsely swearing and not following through Consider Leviticus 19. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. For I am Yahweh. Numbers 30 verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So this is God's instruction to his people that they should swear by his name and follow through, and if they did not follow through, it would be sin. Yet like so much of God's law, these passages, these uh, parts of God's perfect law, over the generations of time were twisted and stretched by the rabbinical establishment. And soon, uh, these sets of instructions over them were layers of rules and caveats added to these oaths. And soon, within God's people, you could swear by objects or other people or animals. And all of these things were man-made constructs built over and above the original form. And so when someone swore by his donkey and didn't follow through with it, he could simply say, well, I didn't swear by Yahweh's name, I sweared by my donkey, and so I'm not held to that oath. You see, it's my donkey. And he could get away with it. And so there were loopholes and caveats and great distortions of God's holy law just about oaths. And so the standard of truthfulness that was worship and that was a testimony before among God's people it was lost what had been meant to foster the truthfulness of Yahweh amongst his people now served the selfish and deceitful hearts of man 
what had been meant to reflect God's truthfulness to the nations now represented the very lies and falsehood of Adam's sin. So now, here in James, we can see a little bit of why James says, do not swear. Do not take an oath. Turn to Matthew chapter 5 and we need to see somewhere else this says the same thing. Matthew 5. We see how James echoes the teaching of Jesus in this. This is a classic James move by now. We've seen this over and over. James echoing Jesus in his teaching and specifically the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, look at verse 30. Uh, 33. Again, you have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by heaven, oh, excuse me, for, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So James and Jesus cut through the tradition and the truthlessness of Jewish culture and point to the heart of those with true and living faith that out of such a heart should flow a refreshing and dependable truthfulness. You see, this is not saying that you can't ever take an oath in court or that you can't finish the naturalization process because it requires swearing in. James's point and Jesus's point in Matthew 5 is that we are to be in our speech, a reflection of God's truthfulness, not in making oaths and vows and then proving them, swearing by God or anything else, but by speaking simply and carefully and humbly and then following through. No oath necessary. One of the most unfortunate establishments to ever grace the internet. Couples YouTube channels. It's the worst. Why are you laughing? You know what I'm talking about? All you sophomore couples that just started dating, don't do it. Trust me. These channels are built entirely on pranks, scaring pranks, I smashed your Xbox pranks, push you in the pool pranks, unfortunately cheating pranks, I'm pretending I can't see you for the whole day pranks. It's really hard to think of what real life is like for these couples who constantly cry wolf and have a camera right in the middle of the room during the whole time. These people's words and lives, you can't tell forward from backward or left from right after a while. Obviously, we know it's just for the videos and the views. But these couples' YouTube channels are just a microcosm of the relativity and the manipulation of the truthfulness in our culture. You see, you can tell the truth when it's convenient for you, but you can also hide the truth when it's convenient for you. And it might even get you further to hide the truth. Everything in regards to the truth is about you. It's about your truth and your story. You craft your truth. You make it. You sculpt your own image See, in a world that regularly exaggerates, in a world that broad brushes for one's own benefit, 
in a world that lies under oath just to advance an agenda, those with true and living faith ought to be so dependable, so worthy of taking at our word, so predictably truthful that yes just means yes and no just means no. This is the integrity and consistency of character found in those who worship the one true God. The God by whom the very concept of truth is defined. Those with true faith must be known for their radical truthfulness in a truthless world. A kind of truthfulness that flows from a heart submitted to the God of truth characteristically truthful. Yet, because that heart is submitted to God, characteristically humble, fully aware that every yes is a yes and every no is a no, but never apart from the will of God. And so true faith speaks the truth. Secondly, secondly we see true faith speaks in prayer. True faith speaks in prayer. We see that in verses 13 to 18. James shows us that in all things, we ought to demonstrate the submission of our hearts to God by praying. We ought to demonstrate that we've submitted our hearts to God and we show that by praying. By praying. Now, there is a whole lot going on in this passage. So buckle up. James shows us a wide range of life situations, a variety of people in this passage within the church. But the answer, the solution, the response in every situation, every circumstance in these verses is very simply to pray. To pray. Look first just at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James begins in verse 13 with the suffering. Those amidst the worries and the woes of this life. Now, the context, if you remember to last week, is the oppression of rich landowners who are withholding wages from the poor. But for you or for me, this may be a health trial or unexpected car troubles on a Friday afternoon or difficulties in your studies or rejection in relationships or disappointment in a variety of ways. The trials come in various forms as we've looked at over the course of this book. What response are we to have to trials? We are to pray. We are to commit our anxieties and our worries. We are to submit our wills. We are to acknowledge and petition the only one who never tempts us, but always gives wisdom to face whatever trial is in front of us, and that's God himself. You see, our simple response when we face trials should be to pray, to pray to God. And yet in verse 13, James also swings the pendulum all the way over to the cheerful. Is anyone cheerful? Let him Sing praise. And now when you think of singing praise, you probably think about singing together corporately, like we just did. Uh, but consider the context here. This is about an individual response to some kind of positive life situation, some kind of good news. And while you can do that with other people, other Christians, James is saying when we are happy, when you get a good grade or you get a promotion or there's some kind of good news, any praise report, we are to sing 
praise. We are to sing praise. We are to acknowledge that that good gift that just came into our lives, that situation, is from God's hand. And we must worship. We must respond in praise. If you've ever played capture the flag, maybe at camp, or at a playground with your friends when you were young, or maybe on campus at freshman orientation. Before the game, one of the most important things is to set the boundaries. Because there's always that one person who, no matter where the boundaries are set, against a brick wall, somehow, because they're cheating, they always find a way through or probably around the boundaries, even if they're clear. Here in verse 13, James is setting the boundaries, so to speak, for our prayer lives. And he's saying, there are no boundaries. You should pray about everything. You should pray when there's a trial in your life at the lowest of lows and you should pray when there is something simple to praise God about and you should pray and sing praise when there's the highest of highs in your life. Everything in life is grounds for prayer. There are no boundaries. No matter what the situation or the circumstance or the occasion there is no boundary. Those with true and living faith submit their hearts to God in prayer. James writes this letter, uh, the elder of the church in Jerusalem. And if you remember back to the very first week we were uh, in the book of James, we talked about James's nicknames. And one of those nicknames was Old Camel Knee. James, old camel knees. It's a peculiar nickname. But a nickname fitting for somebody who was constantly, uh, for the stresses and anxieties of the church in Jerusalem, he was always on his knees. He was always on his knees, just like a camel trying to get up from its knees resting. And so James, old camel knees, writes and finishes this book by saying in every circumstance, you should pray. So if in verse 13, James is showing us the range of events, the uh, range of emotions that should drive us to prayer, everything, verses 14 to 16 give us a few specific instances that fill out that range. You see, if verse 13 is the overall map, verses 14 to 16 are two Really big landmarks on that map. Look at verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Here, someone in the church is sick. Uh, the word literally is uh, weak. Someone has a sickness or a weakness. Probably what's in view here is a physical ailment, a weakness uh, in someone's body. But as we all know from this last two years, or if you've had some other kind of experience, that with physical sickness, there almost always is some kind of discouragement or doubt or despair that comes with that physical ailment. You see, with physical weakness, there is spiritual weakness that comes. And so what is this sick person supposed to do? Call on the elders of the church. This person in their weakness has an instinct to depend 
on the leadership of the church. You see, in a world of medicine, we need to remember that the healer is God. And some of you are studying and you've studied your whole life, your whole existence on this planet to become a doctor. It seems like in your studies as you go through microbiology that it's all up to you. It's up to the precision of the instruments. It's up to the the brilliance of the doctor. It's up to a second opinion and a specialist. And in God's sovereign hand, it is up to those things. But in God's sovereign hand, you see all healing, whether via medicine or apart from medicine, is up to God. It's up to God. And so these elders come and pray over the person, asking for God to heal or to strengthen, strengthen this person. Uh, notice here at the end of verse 14, there is a peculiar addition to what these elders are to do. It's peculiar at least to our modern ears. Look at verse 14. They, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The elders are to pray over the individual and anoint him with oil. Now, let's be clear. There are good men on all sides of what this verse means. Trust me, I spent this week trying to figure it out. There are a few distinct possibilities as to this difficult portion of Scripture as we understand it, as to this use of oil here. And I'll just give you three. The first is this, that it is some sort of ceremonial anointing, that it has nothing to do with uh, medicine at all. It's an anointing of this sick person with oil for the purpose of setting this person apart for God, kind of like the anointing of kings or priests in the Old Testament. So these elders are dedicating this person in their sickness to God's working, his special working. Now, the main evidence for and against these, uh, this view is linguistic. It's primarily about the interchangeability of the two Greek words, alepho and creo. And you don't get much uh, further than the instances and the number of times they're used in biblical literature and in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, and in extra biblical literature before your, your brain just hurts. And you say, I don't know if I see a difference. And so it could be a ceremonial anointing, but I'm telling you now, you probably can't tell from knowing more Greek. The second use potentially is medicinal use. You see the elders are praying and applying oil to the sick person's head and probably to parts of their body as a treatment for wounds in some way. A kind of a healing balm. Not meant to be a full-on treatment, but some kind of help medicinally. And here much is made evidence-wise of ancient extra-biblical writers who push oil as some sort of medicine. Before we dismiss this kind of theory through our modern lens, and I think we quickly do, I've got some essential oils I'd like to sell you afterwards. Come talk to me. Amen. The third use that we could see is potentially a, a, a vehicle of comfort and care to this person. Uh, it's an act of comfort, oil being applied to the individual's, again, head and probably parts of body to soothe and care for practically. And not with the expectation that the oil will do any healing, but that it would help uh, soothe the person in the situation. Think of Mary anointing Jesus' feet with oil, an act of worship, but an act that would soothe the feet of our Lord. And so this is an ancient Near Eastern uh, meal plan for the kind of person suffering. Uh, an outward manifestation of the spiritual care being brought by the elders. And so it's ancient Near Eastern comfort paired with the power of prayer. And it's manifesting care and concern and 
committing it all to the Lord. The Lord, who is in 2 Corinthians, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now this is the option I'm most drawn to. Uh, I mean, I did have oil in my Amazon cart half this week. Not actually, but in thinking through what should we do with this passage. But the most important thing here is to not get distracted by the use of oil. But it is to see that prayer and oil point back to God. Look at the end of verse 14 again. I don't, think, I don't want us to miss this. I don't think we see this. Anointing him with oil, and we obsess over that. But how? In the name of the Lord. You see, if healing were to occur in some way, at least by the power of prayer, it would be by the hand of God and driven by the prayers of faithful elders. And so no matter what view you take, the bottom line is that this sick person, out of submission to God and acknowledgement of weakness, reaches out to the elders of the church, trusting and knowing that they're faithful men, and those leaders, in turn, commit that person to God in prayer and with oil in some way, ministering to that person, caring for them, and lifting them up to God. You see, I see in this situation an understanding, a sobriety even, as to the reality of this person's sickness. There must be in this room a patient, prayerful trust. Prayers that have an eager longing for the coming of the Lord. An earnestness for the relief of all earthly pain and weakness. And ultimately a humble pleading with the God of the universe to heal in His time if it is His will. And if we thought we were done with the controversy in this passage, however, uh, look at verse, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This verse has been misunderstood throughout church history. Roman Catholics apply it in the sacrament of what used to be called extreme Unction, now called simply the anointing of the sick, uh, where this applying of oil and prayer is taken as a last rite, kind of a last chance opportunity for the remission of sins by the priest. Charismatics take this verse to mean that healing is certain, uh, that it is always God's will to heal people and it's a matter of having the right measure of faith to enact that healing. But both of these interpretations completely remove the all-important point of this text. That in His time and in His ways, it is God Himself who will save and deliver. It is God who forgives sin. You see, it is not for us to remit sins or to muster up enough faith to guarantee healing in some way. It is for us to simply submit to God and petition Him in prayer. The key phrase here is uh, the prayer of faith. This is a prayer that acknowledges the sovereign will of God and boldly petitions Him to move, to act. This prayer is reminiscent of other commands to prayer that we see throughout Scripture. And these prayers give sort of a blank check at first glance. Consider 1 John chapter 5. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. John 14, Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, Jesus says. And so, in these passages and in James 5, we see a similar thing. A bold 
promise that God will act, but with a caveat. You see, it's a blank check, but with the earmark already filled out. This is God saying that He will act, but in a very specific way. In 1 John, it's anything according to His will. In John 14, it's asking in Jesus' name. In this passage in James 5, it's a prayer of faith, specifically. You see, verse 15 is not an ironclad guarantee that God will always save. The word here is save, so-so, or deliver. He may not always save in the immediate sense that we'd like to pray for. Although he does heal many times in ways that we can't explain. What this verse means is that as it is according to his will, when healing does come, it is by the will and the power of God. And if instead God delivers in a fuller and a more final way than what we might like, that is to say that the sickness never goes away in this life, then it is, in light of a true and submissive to His will kind of faith, that God will deliver this person to fullness of faith and sight. You see, if He does not raise this person up today by His will, God will, according to that person's faith, raise them up on that last day. That is the saving and the delivering ultimately in eternity future in view. Now, as an aside, I think we need to look and think through something that is a little bit of a distraction in this passage, but I think it's worth our time to think through this. The last phrase in this verse, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. hints at a connection between the physical and the spiritual. Uh, That in some way, sometimes those two things are connected. Uh, That if you're sick, you should think about maybe that you've sinned. And I've thought about this a little bit this week, and I thought it would be helpful to think through this way uh, in three principles. That when you are sick, and we're talking about in a probably more serious way than just the sniffles. When you are sick, how are you to think about yourself and your sin? Are they related in any way? The first in the logic is this. You are sick because of sin. You are sick because of sin. You see, you are sick because in a fallen world where there is weakness, uh, physical and spiritual, the fall has uh, given us all this uh, struggle of physical uh, weakness. Romans 8 describes the creation as waiting with eager longing or subjected to futility or is under bondage to corruption. And so sickness and weakness exists. So first, you are sick because of sin, generally speaking. Number two, you are not sick necessarily because of your sin. You are not sick necessarily because of your sin. You see, at least in a retributive or a punitive kind of way, God is not one-to-one getting back at you for something that you did wrong. God is not punishing you one-to-one for every sin you commit with sickness. You could look at Job. Job proves this connection untrue, demonstrably so. His friends accuse him of sin after sin after sin, and before God and eventually before man, he is proven innocent, yet he still suffered physical weakness and sickness. In John 9, the man born blind is another proof text for this. The disciples ask Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus says to them, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. 
You see, there was a purpose beyond this man or even his parents' sin. And that purpose was the glory of God. So you are sick because of sin, generally. You are not sick necessarily because of your sin, at least in a punitive kind of way. And third and last, you could be sick because of your sin. You could be sick because of your sin. It's not something we think about often, but consider 1 Corinthians 11. The Corinthians were taking the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, and Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Consider, consider Hebrews 12, where it talks about God's discipline as a loving father, that in some way, because of a sin in your life, he is grabbing your attention with sickness to show you, to discipline you for your growth or for your greater good and for his glory. And so if this sickness in James 5 is indeed in this last category, this whole process of calling the elders and the commitment to prayer and using oil in the name of the Lord, this whole process demonstrates the submissive and willing faith of the individual and will uproot and expose sin, sin that is repented of and forgiven by God ultimately. And so for this person, whether for the first time and they're saved or delivered from their sin, or so that they grow, the promise here is that if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's a result of this entire process, a process of faith and submission to God. And so I want to ask you, when you're sick, what's your first instinct? Do you reach for the Dayquil or the ibuprofen before you talk to God? What's your trust in when you get sick? I think these last few years have proven to us what we trust in first. And if you've not already, it's time to repent in how we think about sickness and the role of God in healing us and keeping us and delivering us ultimately. Very quickly, verse 16 broadens this responsibility beyond just the elders in this specific scenario. Look at verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And now this is the responsibility not just in that room, but of all believers in the church to confess sins to one another and pray for one another. This kind of mutual confession and petition brings healing to the church community, both spiritual and physical. Now, hear me out. In this same sense that sins that could be the cause for God's discipline in someone's life are given instead, preemptively as it were, to God's healing and forgiving hand through confession. You see, it is in the confessing. In this submissive and righteous confessing, this person who does all these things, this righteous person whom God hears, this is the kind of person whose prayers will persistently and constantly be according to God's will, these prayers that are confident in God to forgive us our sins, these prayers that reflect His kingdom and His purposes, these prayers that reflect the heart of this whole text tonight. These are righteous words of submissive prayer, overflowing from a righteous heart. And so those words, those righteous words of a righteous person are the kind that God will hear and God will work. Finally, in this long section on prayer in verses 17 and 18, uh, James gives us an example of bold and righteous prayer In these two verses, James shows us the example of prayer in Elijah, the great prophet. It retells in short form and skipping a few stories the story of 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. And we're not going to go there, but if we did, we would see in that text that Elijah, though a man just like us, as this text says, given to the whims and the worries of a mere man, with great faith, 
prayed according to God's will that there might be famine, that there might be no rain. And for three years and six months, there was no rain. This righteous man, in great faith to God, prayed and God worked, just like verse 16 says. I mean, think about that. Three years and six months. That's like your entire college career. And God held the rain back. And then in, verse, in uh, 1 Kings 18, Elijah uh, defeats the prophets of Baal, a famous story. And then showing great faith in the power of God in that instance. And then again, at the end of the chapter, Elijah again prays according to God's will. And the heavens open up and it rains. And the fruit of the earth comes forth. You see, all of the situations and forms and the people in this section about prayer, as well as Elijah's great example, demonstrate the very heart of prayer. Prayer is a worshipful consideration of a creature before its creator. You see, in suffering, in gladness, in sickness, in confession, or in request, in acknowledgement that God and God alone can heal and work and bring rain and deliver and heal if we would just submit our hearts to Him and then come boldly and persistently before the throne of grace. True, true faith speaks in prayer. Lastly and quickly we see number three, true faith speaks to restore. True faith speaks to restore. In verses 19 and 20, where we might expect, we've got a little more room left, a parting goodbye of some kind, or a salutation, or something. James, please. James gives us, instead, a final and more general instruction. A final word of wisdom about how we ought to use our words. Look at verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James here shows us the significant responsibility that we have in using our words to restore someone who wanders from the truth. Now we're talking about someone who is wandering from the truth, someone whose belief or morality puts them in grave spiritual danger. We're not talking about someone who simply has a different conviction than you or a different preference than you that you want to rebuke. What's in view here is persistent and serious wandering from the faith. Now we've seen all throughout James that true faith, this faith that lived out, is put on beautiful display in the believer's life. It's an obedient faith. It's a faith that works. And so this wandering may be a moral wandering, a wandering rooted in disobedience of some kind, perhaps sexual sin or drunkenness or chasing after the world's pleasures some kind of serious sin issue for which this person shows no conscience, uh, no sign of the Spirit's work in that area of life, no repentance or no active fight against sin, but instead an obstinate, willful disobedience. And what's our response with our words? Your responsibility and my responsibility is to bring Him back. This wandering heart may also be uh, wandering centered around unbelief, uh, wandering from the truth on an intellectual or a, a, a philosophical level, a wandering that has abandoned faith in its heart and perhaps latched on to feelings or thoughts or some YouTube wacko conspiracy or struggles with the doctrine or a dissonance in belief and experience. And yet just the same, 
moral or intellectual, your responsibility and my responsibility for this wandering soul is to bring him back. To bring him back. We are to, with our words, care for and minister to this weary wanderer of the faith. We are to listen to and respond appropriately, seeking to be a source of truth patiently and carefully, and guiding this person back to the fold of God. And this is the spirit of restoration we see in Matthew 18, how, how we are to be like God who leaves the 99 to find the one lost sheep, the one lost soul. That passage is so beautiful. It describes God as he finds that sheep and he rejoices over it. He rejoices over it. In bringing the wayward back in our efforts to call others to repentance, that we are to reflect God's very heart. We are to rejoice over those who were lost and, and return to Him. We must also, though, remember that we're not bringing this person back for ourselves. We're not doing this for our own glory or by our own moral standard. We are under shepherds of Christ, those who do his work. And so we should, in these situations, prayerfully and humbly consider whether our discernment is accurate and whether our timing is good. It should slow us down and help us to major on the majors in these situations. This isn't when someone doesn't go to all your events as a class or someone who doesn't like the same godly shade of blue as you, but when their soul is in danger, when their soul is in grave danger, we should speak. We should speak words of correction and words of rebuke and words of help and words of care and comfort about the truth of the gospel that you believe. See, because if you believe it, if you have true and saving and living faith, you should want that for the one who wanders from the faith too. As we seek to keep a loving watch over others in the church, we would do well to remember that if it weren't for the grace of God, we might be in that same precarious place. This is what Galatians 6.1 speaks of. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It goes on. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Verse 20 of James 5 shows us the beautiful result of of our efforts in bringing back the wandering brother or sister. See, that's the measure to which we can be an instrument of the wonderful grace of God in someone else's life. He may use you in someone's life. He may save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And he may use you and your life-giving, truth-filled words to do it. Those with true faith speak purposefully in a way that shows overflowing true and living faith, a faith lived out, a faith that we've seen all throughout this book of James. Everyone loves a good fire. I'm no pyro, but I love a good fire. Kick your feet up and see into the flames and get mesmerized a little bit. Throw a twig in. A fire, controlled, can do so much. It can make the camp just a little bit more like something you want to settle into or make your little home. Fire, used right, can warm up the whole house. And a fire used right in the godliest way possible, can cook a steak. 
we've seen in James that our tongue is like a fire that sets a forest ablaze. But it's not enough to just tame that tongue and keep it under control and superglue our lips to the day of eternity. GOC, we ought to use our tongues, use our words, use our speech like a tame fire, a fire that we use that shows what is flowing out of our hearts, true and living faith that speaks the truth, uh, that prays, and that restores all in a faith lived out. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of James. We thank you for uh, the fact that we have looked at your word and we see so much of how we need to obey, how much we fall short, how much we need your mercy uh, to do what you ask of us in this book. And yet we are reminded that your word, your all-sufficient word, in it we find not just demands on our lives, but life. We find life, Lord. We find life in Jesus. And so in him we understand the, the true fulfillment and obedience of all that we've seen in James. And in it, in him, in his perfect obedience, we find life. And so we rejoice in that life tonight, knowing that in that life we find the strength to obey. And in that life we find the righteousness to stand before you and be called sons and daughters of the living God. We thank you in all these things and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.